I invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4, as we are continuing Paul's magnificent uh, explanation of the gospel and how we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 4. Paul has just mentioned in chapter 3, verse 28, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And chapter 4 is going to be um, a discussion proving that point, proving that principle. And uh, we're going to pick that up in chapter 4, verse 1. We'll read through verse 12. Let's give our attention to God's Word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness." Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's ask the Lord to bless. Oh, Father in heaven, now as we open your word, we trust in your spirit. We thank you that Jesus Christ has ascended to heaven, that the spirit might be poured out. And Lord, we just uh, pray that that precious spirit will uh, illumine now the words that he's inspired. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, British pastor of the last century, tells the story of an artist who noticed a grubby, dirty, and disheveled street sweeper on the streets of London. And he was inspired uh, to paint a picture of this display of raw, unkept, impoverished humanity. And so he, he talked to the man and arranged to have the man meet him the next day and stand for a painting. Well, the man arrived on time, but uh, the artist was immediately disappointed because the, the street sweeper had tried to clean himself up. And so the pathetic end uh, effect was an unkept, impoverished man uh, desperately trying to appear as something other than what he was. And the artist had to explain to him that he wasn't interested in painting a, um, a tidied up street sweeper. He, was, uh, he wanted to paint the real one, the man as he actually was. And Spurgeon went on to say that many Christians act just like that street sweeper. We We come before God only after attempts to clean ourselves up. But as we'll see in our text this morning, God is not interested in our tidied up version. 
um, it's really an affront to him. What God is interested in is our true self. He wants us to come as we actually really are, with all of our grime and filth and all of our need. He doesn't want us to come and try to make show that we're worthy of his grace because then it's, it's no longer grace. But to come as we are, trusting that God is willing and able to declare us righteous. And this morning in Romans chapter 4, we're going to continue to unpack how is that possible? How is it possible that God, a righteous and just judge, has, how is it possible for him to declare you a known sinner in fact and truth to be righteous and innocent in his sight? Well, the, uh, this morning we come to another great gospel word, and that is the word imputation. Maybe don't see it in your text, but it's there four times, at least in theory, uh, where the ESV uses the word counts. Uh, Other translations use the word, uh, it was credited to him or reckoned to him. Uh, Theologians use the word imputation. Uh, The gospel is the glorious good news of justification by imputation, right? Justification by by imputation. I know those are kind of big, big weighty words, but it's a big weighty gospel. And uh, these words help us understand what it means, what we're talking about. And so this morning we're going to just unpack what does imputation, justification by imputation mean. I'm just going to start by looking at the issue that Paul, uh, the discussion that Paul's engaged in. As he's writing this letter, he has in his mind a both the church to whom he's writing, of course, but also the Jews with which whom he is constantly debating. And he is in the middle of a discussion here where he's talking about justification, which is the one-time legal declaration that God makes over a sinner in which God declares that sinner to be righteous in his sight, acquitted of all charges, and fit to enter into the glory of of heaven, all by grace alone and through faith alone in Jesus alone. That's the kernel of the gospel. Now, the argument that Paul is having with the Jews specifically is on what basis, on what basis can God declare wicked men, ungodly men, sinful men, to be righteous in his sight? What is the ground for justification? And the Jews wanted to say that the basis upon which God can justify a sinner is if that sinner cleans himself up. The basis uh, would be the righteousness, the inherent righteousness of the person being justified. In other words, they believe that, that only people who are truly personally, inherently good, righteous in that sense, could hope to be declared righteous by God. So when Paul says here in chapter 4 that God justifies the ungodly, that is not just an oxymoron, that is highly offensive. Um, It's an abhorrent thought to them. that God cannot possibly justify the ungodly, if he is to be a righteous judge. It would be a violation, you see, of God's own justice. It, it, is, it is to call God a liar, and God cannot lie. They would be outraged 
by that statement that God justifies the ungodly. And that outrage is, is not that hard to imagine. It's easy enough to illustrate. Imagine that you were uh, attending an Olympic figure skating contest or you're watching it on TV. And uh, the judges are there and um, they're charged with, with giving a score, right, to each contestant. And so you watch the various contestants come out and um, beautiful music and wonderful costumes, um, impeccable choreography, and you're, you're seeing them do their, their uh, toe loops and triple sow cow and the, and the quadruple axles, and it's all magnificent, and, the, and they're being judged accordingly. It's a wonderful program. And then, to your amazement, out comes a guy in shorts and a t-shirt, and he can barely skate. Uh, the music is awful. It sounds like the fourth grade recital, a rec recorder recital, right? Just... And this guy can barely stand up. He's slipping and sliding and flopping all over the arena. Uh, he's got this huge smile on his face nonetheless, and you don't know whether to, to, to look or to just close your eyes. And so you're kind of watching through your fingers. Um, his best move is getting back up. When it's finally mercifully over... Um, he stands before the judges, and they all hold up a 10. Perfect score. What would be your reaction? I think you'd protest. That man does not deserve a 1, much less a 10. Something crooked's going on. No one else got perfect 10s. In spite of all their ability and skill, no one got perfect 10s. The judges must be getting paid under the table. Anyone with eyes can see that this is an uh, outrage, an absolute outrage. What in the world is going on? And the answer is, of course, the gospel is going on. This is precisely what happens in the gospel. The gospel is the stunning revelation that in Jesus Christ, God justifies the ungodly. God justifies not according to our performance, but by His grace as a gift, chapter 324. So when it comes to justification, God does not score according to how well you've performed. He does not score you according to the, uh, how moral your life has been. The gospel is the good news that God uh, justifies by faith apart from the works of the law, 328. The whole point of the gospel is God gives a perfect 10 to people who constantly fall flat on their face when it comes to godly, righteous living. And He does it freely, and He does it by grace, and He does it through faith for all who believes. So, does that mean that God just ignores righteousness, the necessity of righteousness altogether? Does he ignore the fact, right? Have the, have the judges just ignored the fact that the guy can't skate? Well, not exactly. You see, God imputes righteousness. He imputes righteousness to those who believe. And again, we can illustrate this with the Olympic skating event. You see, the, the figure skating debacle would make sense if you learned that the judges were not looking at their performance the way you were. You were looking for skill and ability and accomplishment. The judges noticed those things, but it wasn't what they were looking for. They were looking for something else entirely. You see, uh, 
In all the history of the sport, imagine this, that there had been one man, one man only, who had gotten a perfect 10 in every event he ever entered. And in the fine print of the program for that evening, it said that the perfection of that one skater would be freely imputed by the judges to anyone who would simply ask for it. You just had to ask. Well, come to think of it, you remember that at the beginning of this man's awful performance, he he had kind of slid up to the judges and had a conversation with them, and, and they had nodded their heads, and he had gone about flailing all over the arena with this big smile on his face as, as though he were certain that he had won. And, the, of course, the reason is because he had. He wasn't skating to gain the reward. He was skating in the confidence he had the reward. All the merit, you see, of the, the perfection of that one skater has been freely imputed to him, not by performing, but by asking. That's the gospel. We're counted righteous by asking, by coming to God, not with our ability or skill, but by, with all of our need and all, the, all that we lack, and, and trusting that God is willing to do what He said He would do. That God is willing to impute the righteousness of Jesus Christ to anyone who asks, to all who believe. And that's precisely the point that Paul is making here. And in chapter 4, he's going to prove that point by going to what would seem to the Jews to be a most unlikely place because he's going to go to Father Abraham. In the Jewish mind, Father Abraham is their guy. He's, He's evidence for their point. Abraham is the irrefutable proof of justification by works. That's how Jews see it. They considered him to be one of the most righteous men who ever lived. In fact, some of their scholars said that Abraham was sinless. And they would point to his amazing willingness to sacrifice his own son Isaac as an example of his virtue, his righteousness. If there was ever a man deserving of being justified by works, it was Abraham. And he was an example to all Jews who would follow him. So by going to Abraham, Paul is really taking this Jewish conviction head on. But notice what Paul does. We see in the argument, first notice Paul just points to the words of the text. For what does the scripture say? That is a great question. Whenever you're having a dispute of some sort, uh, feel free to open your Bible and say, "Let's, let's see what the text actually says. Not what we have assumed that it says, not what we heard maybe somewhere along the line someone said that it says. Let's just read it. What does it say? Well, Paul quotes directly from Genesis 15, 6, where it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Does not say that Abraham obeyed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Didn't, doesn't say Abraham did his best and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed faith. Specifically, Abraham believed God. It doesn't say Abraham believed in God. Lots of people believe in God and do not have justifying faith. The devil believes in God. He's not justified. The text says Abraham believed 
God. In other words, Abraham believed God's promise, God's word to him. In Genesis 15, God has come to Abraham, this old man with a barren wife. Both of them passed the ability to bear children, and God promises to make them the father of a multitude of nations. As many as the stars in the sky, in the sand on the, on the shore. And Abraham believed it. Took God at his word. If God says it, I believe it. And the text says that God counted it as righteousness. Abraham, you see, was justified in exactly the same way that every child of God is justified, Old and New Testament alike. It's by grace, through faith, as a gift. And Paul deals then, secondly, with this nature of grace as a gift. And his point is simply that the the grace of salvation would be eradicated if the Jews are right. If Abraham is justified by his own inherent righteousness, well, then it's not of grace. It's what God owes to him. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as, as his due. So if, if Abraham is justified by his obedience, he can walk up to the court of heaven and slap his righteousness down on the counter like you do at Chuck E. Cheese and order the reward. Because God owes it to him. God is a debtor to Abraham. Well, that just flies in the face of everything we know about God and about the way that God works. Paul points out that that's that's not what we read in the Scriptures anywhere. God doesn't justify those who are worthy. And the reason is because there's none who is worthy, right? All are worthless, Paul has just said in 3 verse 12. They have all become worthless. God does not justify the righteous because no one is. Not in a meritorious way. God justifies those who believe, those who believe in Him. Verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. God justifies the ungodly. It's a wonderful, wonderful truth. And Paul turns to Psalm 34, David, in Psalm 32, excuse me, to to prove it, to confirm it. Verse 6, just as David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts, imputes righteousness apart from works. Who are the blessed ones in Psalm 32? The people who work hard, the people who don't sin, the people who keep their nose clean and and do enough good works to cover over what maybe their failings? Well, no. Psalm 32 says, blessed uh, are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You see, many, many people are Christians thinking that, that to be a Christian means to live as best you can, go to church and read your Bible and pray and do the right things, trusting that um, that is able to cover your sin. Well, that's, that's just a religion of works. That's, that's not Psalm 32. That's, that's, that's not the gospel anywhere in the Bible. The blessedness of being a Christian is that you are the ungodly person and the person who has committed lawless deeds and God does not impute your sin to you. He forgives your sin and covers over your sin. Well, who gets that? Those who work? No, those who believe. 
See, sinners receive the blessings of God. Sinners do. Not nice, clean, moral, Dutch, West Michigan Christian people. Sinners do. Sinners do. And they do it all in the same way, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And, and God then declares them to be righteous, these sinners, these ungodly people, by virtue of imputation. He counts righteousness to them. Well, this was at the heart of the battle of the Reformation in the 16th century. The, the argument of the Reformation was not over the necessity of grace or the necessity of faith. The Roman Catholic Church uh, insisted on both grace and faith. The point of contention when it came to justification was on what basis does God justify? Exactly the, the argument Paul's been having with the Jews. What is the ground of justification? And the Roman Catholic Church, like the Jews, was teaching that uh, God justifies those who have inherent righteousness. Now, how do you get inherent righteousness? You get baptized, uh, you do penance, you live the, your Christian life the best you can, you participate in the sacraments of the church, and God is giving grace to you through those means, and you are becoming righteous, and uh, at the end of your life, you get declared just because you are just. And if you're not done at the end of your life, you can go to purgatory and complete that work of becoming sufficiently righteous for God to say, you're righteous. That's inherent righteousness. Well, you see, if that's true, <clears throat> then the Jews are right. If that's true, then justification is by merit. Uh, if that's true, then, then justification is a debt God owes, not a gift that he gives. Then God is actually justifying the godly. And that is not Paul's gospel. And so Luther and Calvin and the other reformers were convinced, and correctly so, that the ground, the basis of justification must be and can only be the imputed righteousness of Christ that's counted to us, that's credited to us by grace and through faith. And so we got to close by asking this question, what then is the role of faith? Because it would be easy to read this and think, okay, the, the role of faith is that it is the righteous work that we do, and God credits that righteousness to us. So you can read, right, Abraham believed, and it, his act of believing, was credited as righteousness. That, that there's a way of understanding that, that faith has its own merit, its own inherent value, and many people live like that. If you ask them, why do you think you're going to heaven? Because I believe. I believe in God, and I believe the Bible, and I believe in angels, and I, I believe all that stuff. And my believing has inherent value, and so I'm convinced that uh, believing makes me a good person, and, uh, and God will reward me with salvation. Well, again, you see, that completely misses the gospel. What does faith do in your salvation? What does faith actually do? Faith, friends, is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift of God. So it's the work of, a, of the Holy Spirit that unites us to Jesus Christ in all the glory of His person and His work. At the end of the day, nobody is saved by faith. 
We are saved by Jesus. All right, we're saved by Jesus. Faith is the instru- instrument, the instrumental cause, maybe you could say. Jesus is maybe the material cause. Jesus is the efficient cause. We're saved by Jesus. And, and you see, we're saved by being united to Christ by faith. So the value of faith is not, is not a, a, a some sort of work that merits God's response. The value of faith is that it is the means created by the Holy Spirit by which we are united to Jesus Christ in all of His righteousness. And by being united to Jesus Christ, then His righteousness is freely imputed to you, the sinner, and that wonderful union with Jesus and the righteousness of Christ that has been given to you freely, that is the basis of your justification. Let me quickly prove that to you from Scripture and then close by showing you why it matters. Philippians 3, verse 8 and 9, Paul says, I count everything as loss because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He's been united to Christ. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through, not, not, not because of, but through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the righteousness he was trusting in. 1 Corinthians 1.30, because of him, the Father, you are in Christ Jesus' union, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Everything that we need to be truly, fully saved, we receive by virtue of union with Jesus Christ, who is our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That's what it means to believe as a Christian. To believe as a Christian is is to lay hold of Jesus as your righteousness. To be convinced that Jesus is is willing to be your righteousness. So you can stop performing and start believing and living. You see, what difference will this make in your life? What would you give this morning to know with irrefutable certainty that your standing before God is as certain as Jesus' own standing before the Father? What would you give to know that, for every, that every single thing that God does in your life, with bar none, every single thing God does in your life, He does with all the love for you that He has for His own Son? What would you give to know that your eternal destiny in glory is as certain and fixed as Jesus' destiny in glory? Because that's what the gospel provides It's not not a path for you to walk to try to gain the rewards. It is a gift that God gives being Jesus and all of his rewards. Let me share with you the testimony of an old saint, pastor and author, John Bunyan. He wrestled with assurance for years. But in his testimony written in uh, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, he, he writes this, One day as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul, Thy righteousness is in heaven. 
And methought that I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand, and there I saw was my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks righteousness. For that was just before him or in front of him. I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did the chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away. So that from that time, those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble left off to trouble me. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. You see, when you grasp that Jesus Christ is your righteousness and that he stands your righteousness before the throne of God and God will never say you lack righteousness because the righteousness by which you've been justified and saved was never your own to begin with. It was always Jesus. And so you see, that frees you, friend, to flop and fail and skate all over this world, right? To, to live your Christian life with a big smile on your face in the confidence that you've won and that God is going to build you up and God's going to make you strong and God's going to keep you to the end. There's confidence in this gospel, assurance in this gospel. One of the, one of the, one of the uh, just clouds that hangs over Christians, Christians so often, I see this so commonly in West Michigan and even in Reformed churches in West Michigan, is this cloud of uncertainty, this cloud of doubt, so that we're not full of joy, we're not deeply at peace with God, we're, we're not bold in our faith, we're uncertain in our faith. And the only reason is because we don't understand our faith. We've not laid hold of Jesus Christ in this way. Jesus, my righteousness. So that I'm already, already conquered in Christ who has loved us. Friends, this is what God wants us to know. He wants you to know. No matter who you are this morning, you will never be able to merit your salvation. Don't even, don't even try. Give it up. No matter, no matter who you are, you'll never be able to merit your, your righteousness. But no matter what you've done, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace to you in Jesus Christ because God justifies the, the wicked, the ungodly, and he is willing to freely impute the righteousness of Christ to you as a gift to be received by faith. And so receive it. Just receive it. Let God meet you this morning as you are, a failure, a sinner, someone who's never going to be able to perform up to the standard of the law, someone who's blown it in countless ways and will again, but come to God as you are and let God then speak his gospel, his peace to you as you receive Jesus as your righteousness. This morning we come to the Lord's table and we take that wine and we take the bread, but it's not just wine and bread, it's sacramental wine and bread. And it points exactly to that union with Jesus Christ. Jesus says if you eat, right, as long as you, as you drink my blood and you eat my flesh, in faith you proclaim the Lord's coming again. 
And so, friends, let's lay hold of the sacrament this morning in faith. Let's receive what Jesus is for us. Let's delight in the gospel of justification by imputation received by faith. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, just as we are without one plea, we come this morning as sinners, every single one of us, nothing to boast. People who have violated your law, both by acts and thoughts and deeds of commission and, Lord, by sins of omission, things that we failed to do. And every single sin, O oh Father, justly deserving eternal condemnation, for you are a just judge. And yet, Lord, this morning you invite us to flee to Jesus, to find refuge in him. What an amazing thing that Jesus Christ was willing to come and live a perfectly obedient life and offer that as a sac- up on a cross as he was sacrificed, bearing our sin. And that his righteousness might be imputed to us freely as a gift by grace. Oh, God, forgive us for how often we refuse to believe it. And I pray that this morning, Lord, your spirit would bind this truth through our heart that changes how we think, how we feel, how we live. And we are free to live with the confidence of your love, free to live with the confidence of, of our eternal destiny, free to, free to live as the children of God and invite others into this glorious, glorious truth. Oh, Father, bless us now as we come to the table of Christ. May we eat and drink in faith, rejoicing in your salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.